So Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, and what had happened was the overtaking of the kings of the north and rescuing Lot. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shalt thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord brought thee out of Ur. I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. In that same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Amen. May God bless the reading and the further teaching of his own word. 
I invite you to open your Bibles and even those that may be at home and open your Bibles in Genesis 15. We hope to consider this this wonderful chapter and episode in the life of Abraham, the patriarch, and we will be doing this also and we'll be reading shortly um, Lord's Day 23. We have resumed our are going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and this is page 51 in the back of our Psalters. We'll read it shortly in Lord's Day 23. And we had been having some of these Lord's Day sermons in the morning, but now we, we have been having it in the afternoon as we arrive at the end of, of what we have been in the study of the Creed, of the Apostles' Creed. And so we have just read it shortly. Is the, the creed is basically one of the shortest summary of the major doctrines of the whole Bible. And, and this is why the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism took that creed and worked them through all of these Lord's Days. Now we arrive at Lord's Day 23 that kind of looks back at, at all of these articles and says... It began with a thought of this is what we believe. Now it's saying, now that we believe these things, well, what, what profit does it do? What, what happens to you when you believe these truths that are central? Which is in essence saying, when you believe the Bible, when you believe the gospel, what happens to you? And this is what we'll be looking at today. But still as an introduction, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we understand that this is a summary that was written by the ancient church that was taught by the Apostles. So it was the teaching of the Apostles that became um, internalized by the first believers after the Apostles. And that's why they called it the Apostles' Creed. Not because the Apostles wrote it, but the apostles taught those truths to them. But the word creed, and we understand, I believe most of us understand that we we are to believe these things, but it's good to know that the word believe and the word creed are completely connected. The the word creed comes from the Latin credo, C-R-E-D-O, which means I believe, because that's the first word of the creed. In in Latin is credo, meaning I believe, and, and this is precisely also what we um, say, right? The very first article, I believe. Um, And so that's the title of these articles. It is the apostles, I believe. And in Latin is credo, and we call it creed. Now, these are the truths that we are to believe. And what does faith do? What happens to you when you believe these things? Um, just looking at them very briefly, to, to say that you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that's one article about God as our creator and who's almighty. What, what does that do? What happens to you when you believe that truth? In Articles 2 all the way down to um, Article 7 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ from his coming to his sacrifice, to his returning. Well, what happens to you when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then notice um, Article 8 is about the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, God the Son, now God the Holy Spirit. What happens to you when you believe that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And then 
I believe in a holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. In essence, when a believer says, I believe in the church, he's, he's affirming that he believes he exists, that he, that he is part of a body of believers. Um, it's not necessarily that by believing there is a church that you would say you're saved, but when you believe in Christ, you are saved and you are part of this church. And we still need to believe there is a church because it's, it's, it's what happens to you when you believe. You are saved and you're engrafted in Christ. You're part of the Holy Catholic Church. You are part of the communion of saints. Um, to deny this is really, in essence, to deny everything else. Because to, to say, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe there is a church. That's a dysfunctional faith. It's to believe in the head, but not the body. And, and Christ is the one who engrafted the body in him, that there would be a body. And so you see how it's all intricately connected. And then if we are part of the church, it's because our sins are forgiven. So we declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins and that we will resurrect and have eternal life. Um, notice that these last few articles are already speaking of what happens to you when you believe. And so... Um, I'm going to read one verse from Genesis 15 that is, is, it, it's become a central verse in terms of this whole reality that we're talking about of what faith does. And in one word is that it, it makes you righteous. And this is where it comes from. Genesis 15 verse 6. It was used three other times in the New Testament to prove justification by faith. So let me read Genesis 15, verse 6. After God spoke to him and declared that he would be an heir to all that land, that he would have someone from his own bowels, a child, it says, and he believed in the Lord. So that's faith. And he, the Lord, counted it, this faith, to him for righteousness. Because he believed he received righteousness because he believed he was considered righteous. And this is, in essence, what we have in summary in Lord's Day 23. So now I'll read the questions of Lord's Day 23. Um, there are three questions there. First one, 59. What doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? And all this is referring to the Apostles' Creed. And the answer, that I am righteous in Christ before God, and an heir of eternal life. And there's a parallel. Abraham was declared righteous and the heir of that land, but that land was, was a picture of heaven itself. And so when you believe in these truths, you're righteous in Christ and you have eternal life. You're an heir of eternal life. And how art thou righteous before God? How can you receive this righteousness? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ." I, I love it that they, they 
they outline the righteousness of Christ in these three words. The satisfaction, the righteousness, and the holiness of Christ. Even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. And as much as I embrace such benefits with a believing heart, faith. And the last question, why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? What's the whole matter of it being only faith? What is the importance to stress that? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, because we can even think of faith as a work, and that's another error. So it's not that God sees our faith and says, oh, you're worthy, I'll give it, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, those three words again, is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. So this is why our theme is faith and righteousness. Looking at Genesis 15, we, we have a wonderful example of, of where this doctrine is derived for. A man that believed, it was counted to him for righteousness. And not because God looked at his faith and saw that he deserved that righteousness. No. And we're going to see that even in the text, we see that Abraham has enough in himself that shows it's not because of him, but because of God's own grace. And so we will look at number one, he believed in the Lord, looking at verse six and in and, and his context, and yet that he believed. We will see the great exchange that we find, especially in that whole ritual of the animals being divided in two, and the Lord in a, in a symbolic way passing in between those animals. And our third point, we will see the combination of faith and grace. The fact that this was all of the grace of God. And so first, as we look at this theme, that he believed in the Lord. Verse 6, he believed in the Lord. Abram believed. His name was still not yet changed to Abraham, but it was still Abram. But he believed in the Lord. And we'll look at the example of, that Abraham was. He is one of the greatest examples in the Bible of faith. And who, whoever was able to be with us in the morning um, knows that we're going through Luke chapter 9 and we saw all of those principles from those encounters with people that said they wanted to follow Jesus and that Jesus told them to follow him. We, we got some principles about um, what it means to follow Jesus and what, what we need to understand about following Jesus. And you can look at each one of those and put them against Abraham. And we see that Abraham understood it. He, he understood what following Jesus meant. Remember that first principle that following Jesus involves sacrifice. And Abraham understood sacrifice. He had left Ur. He had left Haran and he went to a land that he had absolutely no idea of. Remember, um, boys and girls, think of the reality that he would have had family in Ur. He would have had relatives in her, maybe a farm. He had friends, but he was leaving all of that behind. 
And in days where traveling was infinitely harder than today, and he simply left everything and went to a land that was completely unknown. He had not where to lay his head, like Jesus said to that man who said he wanted to follow him. And then also Abraham understood that following God involved knowing the truth. God was very clear to Abraham. Remember how God said that those who blessed him would be blessed. Those who cursed him would be cursed. And God was very sincere to Abraham. There will be blessings and there will be cursings. There will be people harming you and people doing good to you. Following me is not a life where everything will go well um, experientially. And Abraham understood this and still followed God and obeyed God. He also understood that not having that home that was here upon this earth it didn't mean that he, he had lost everything. He, he understood there was a greater, more solid home waiting for him in heaven. Remember how we, we read in Hebrews and it reveals there that the patriarchs, and we can start with Abraham... They, they were seeking a country, it says in Hebrews 11, verse 14. and verse 15, it says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And, and I think this is a key secret. Why can a person just uproot and look at his home and say, it doesn't matter that this is my home. I will live as if I have none and say, I will follow Jesus, even if it means that that family will not like it and homes will be despised. It doesn't matter because if you understand it, we're not, we're not losing everything to lose everything, to gain nothing. We are losing everything to gain everything because we're gaining heaven. And even as we read in the creed, and, and if you have again the, the creed right before us, it's, it's so impactful to think we start with God the Father. He's almighty. We end with everlasting life for you and me who believe. With, with resurrection of the body, with forgiveness of sins, and that you and I are part of this um, holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. We look at the Lord Jesus in this creed, and he's the one who is dead and buried. He descended into hell. And we end with us with life everlasting. Us with forgiveness of sins. So, so I have to look at my home and say, well, I will live as if I had none. Is that really, at the end of the day, even a sacrifice? If we look to heaven and we see that it will never, ever be taken away, no one can steal heaven from you. No one. No one can take away a second of your eternal life. They can take your life away from this earth in persecution, but it only ushers you faster into the visible experience of eternal life. And no one can take that away. And, and, and Abraham understood that. And just going further, he understood, remember we saw this morning that following Jesus involves a sense of urgency. When, when Jesus, um, when you hear the gospel, it, it is now that you need to respond. It is not it, when you have this mindset that well, maybe later, maybe later, you're not understanding. You might not have a later and you're not realizing the value of Christ. 
Can, can you imagine if I were to put um, um, 10 pounds of gold in front of you and you were to tell me, well, well later I'll take it. And I'm saying it's, it's really yours. You know, the person who says maybe later has no idea of the value of this goldish metal I'm, I'm displaying. So the same thing happens when you share the gospel and someone says, oh, maybe later. They have no idea that they're saying goodbye for the moment at least to eternity, to forgiveness of sins. And yes, even gold, you could say, those, those golden streets of, of heaven. They're saying goodbye to God. They don't understand. You see, Abraham understood the sense of urgency. When, when we read about Abraham um, in Ur, when God spoke to him to go, he went. He didn't say, Lord, let me just have another harvest here because, you know, we're in the middle of it. We don't know when it was that God called him, but we just know he went. He understood the sense of urgency. Um, we, we saw also this morning that in, in, in following Jesus involves accepting God's terms and not ours. God said, go to Canaan. He didn't say, let me go to Joppa. God said, go to Canaan. And he went. And it is true. And, and here we see the elements of God's grace. Abraham had elements where he tried to put in his terms. The very next chapter is where um, Hagar conceives Ishmael out of the plot of Sarah and Abraham that maybe that's how God would bring the child. And that speaks of, the, of not that he was completely turning away from God's terms, but he was putting in some of his. That clearly is Abraham not having a mature faith, but he never despised the terms of God. He never said, enough of this, I will follow my own terms like Esau did and, and others in the Bible we see that did. Saul, King Saul, who never accepted God's terms. Abraham understood God's terms. And also we saw that in following Jesus, it involves greater love to him than for anyone else in this earth and that's what we see in Abraham especially in his leaving his land and going where God told him to go and then also that last thing that following Jesus involves a, a not looking back and Abraham understood this so well he, he, he saw it as a symbol that if any of his sons or grandsons went back to Mesopotamia that would be a looking back and remember, he told his servant to go there to find a wife and said, but don't take Isaac there. He was afraid that Isaac would go back and not stay in the land of promise. And then you remember Jacob, even though they understood they had to be in Egypt for a while, he told Joseph, bury my body in Canaan. And even when Joseph died, he told his people, bury my bones, not in Egypt, but when you get out of Egypt, take my bones with you. And it was, they understood that you can't look back. You, you have to be resolute. And so Abraham is such an example of faith. Every, everything we've been studying in the morning, we have here now a wonderful example of someone whom if, not if, but when God told Abraham, follow me. Um, in those pre-incarnate of Christ days, Abraham said, I will. 
whithersoever thou goest. And I'm fine with no place to lay my head. And I'm fine not to, to stay here longer. And I'm not going to look back. And he went. Um, that's the example that Abraham is of faith to, to us. Now, we have already in this looked a little bit of the context of Abraham. But let's look a little bit better. So he left, he left Ur of the Chaldees. Um, the land of Mesopotamia and came here to um, Canaan. And in Canaan, remember, not too long after he arrived, there was that famine that made him have to go to Egypt. And when he was there in Egypt, um, there he did lie about his wife. All of that was showing that he wasn't a perfect man. And it shows God's grace that he used him anyway um, and protected him. He left Egypt writ wealthier than when he arrived there. And then he and Lot separated because they were so prosperous. It was hard to live together because their cattle was increasing. And so Abraham gave Lot the better choice, the first choice, of the, and he chose the better land. Abraham stayed with the second choice, and he was content. And just before this chapter is where Lot, having been close to the cities of the plain, um, he was captured with everybody else that was captured from the cities of the plains. Remember, um, boys and girls, that the four kings of the north from the area of Shinar, and that would have been around the area of Mesopotamia, they came down and warred against the five kings of the plain. And that involved the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and, and other cities in that area, and took everything and everyone captive, including Lot. Abraham got all of his servants who were trained men, and then he had other neighbors that had their own little militia army, and they went in pursuit and prevailed. And in prevailing, he brought back all of that booty. And then remember that um, the, the king of Sodom came and said that he could keep all the things, just give me the people. And, saw, and, and Abraham said, no, um, you can keep all the things. He did out of that give a 10% to Melchizedek. He did also say that those who went with him of his neighbors could keep their portion. But he had not a single shoe latchet of all that. And Melchizedek blessed him, remember? And now, I'm, I'm saying all of this to bring us to the very beginning of chapter 15. How would you feel if you were the one who brought back your nephew in safety, having um, prepared a little militia against all these other kings that were well established in the land? What is the next thing that can possibly happen? Well, the survivors will go back and they know possibly the address and the identity of the people who attacked. And they now want revenge. And they now want to pay back the evil that they believe you caused. And many commentators believe that this is precisely where Abraham was under the fear of the possible retaliation of those four kingdoms um, the survivors that could bring back other armies. And, and so in verse 1 it says, After these things, so after the war, after the battle, after being blessed by Melchizedek, but also um, knowing that he caused harm to a lot of other people, 
After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not. And even because of this phrase, uh, for God to say, Fear not, it's because he was afraid. Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You might be scared of their retaliation, but I am your shield. Um, you gave away all that plunder and kept nothing of it, but I am your reward. Uh, the plunder may have been great, but God is exceeding great. Um, so this is the context that God comes and tells him, um, I am your Lord. And so Abraham in his humanity says, Lord, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless. So he's understanding if I die and my wife dies, in what way will I bless the nations? And what way can I inherit this earth? And in and, and what ways can I possess this earth if there's none from me to even take it? Is it through mine heir who's really the son of my steward? Is it him? Because if it is, he's not really my own son, but he can be an heir. Is that how it will be? And then in verse 4, the Lord made it very clear. This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And, and this is even what can be understood in a human way that Abraham thought, okay, God said it's out of my bowels. He later told this to Sarah. And Sarah easily thought, okay, if it is your bowels, maybe it is through Hagar. And this is how we can understand the weakness of Abraham to, to have chosen that route. But God is here saying, you will have a child. And then he took him out. And, and as a token, this is not a vision in essence, but it is God using what's already in creation to, to plant in Abraham an encouragement. He says, look up to the skies. And so children who, you, you know what the sky looks like. And all, all of us imagine it night and and. and and when you can see the stars shining, and, and you, can you count them? This is what God told him to do. Count them now. And Abraham probably immediately thought, it's, it's impossible. I've, I've tried. There are millions of them. And God is saying, well, that's exactly the point. Count them if you're able. So shall thy seed be. Um. God is saying, see Abraham, how you have no idea how many. Well, that's how great your seed will be. And this is where verse 6 comes in. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So God promised that there would be a great number of people coming out of him. And we do believe that when God said that, he wasn't meaning just those who are blood relations of Abram. Even when you think of those who are blood related, it is a great multitude. But the New Testament makes it clear that even all the believers, everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, are part of those who are blessed in Abram. So that when he was looking at all those stars, and if you're a Christian today, it's as if one of those stars was representing you. And each one of those stars was representing every single believer. Because even Jews who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, then they aren't one of those stars. Because what really matters is those who are blessed in Abraham. Someone may have been born of the blood of Abraham, but they don't believe in the Messiah that came from the seed of Abraham, 
then they aren't one of those stars. Until you believe in Christ, it is faith in these promises, the coming of the Messiah. And, and this leads us then to our second point. So we see here the faith of Abraham. And, and as our um, catechism asks, it, it asks, um, um, what does it profit now that thou believest all this? And the answer is that I am righteous in Christ before God, an heir of eternal life. And so this is why we talk about righteousness. And this is what we'll talk about in this great exchange. And our second point, um, what, what I'm wanting to do here is use this illustration in Genesis and to help us see perhaps what we could consider one of the most precious truths that, that summarizes the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus has come to this world and the message that he died for sinners and that if you believe in him, you are saved. That is a summary of the gospel. But we need to see deeper and, and a deeper reality of the gospel is, is exactly this, that there is a great exchange that happens. An exchange like no other. The, the world, like the minds of humans, cannot understand this. We, we exchange things based on value. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure each one of you if, you, if you sell things, or if you fix things, or if you teach classes, um, it is all based on exchange. You think, well, one hour of teaching, well, you should pay me so many dollars for that hour. If I fix this, it's typically connected to the price of the materials and the hours also of my fixing, and, and they give you a value. We're used to exchange, but it's almost like putting things in a balance. You put like a pound of weight on one side, and there has to be a pound of weight on the other. And that's how we're used to doing exchange. But the great exchange of the gospel is something that defies every kind of human exchange. It doesn't exist in our way of thinking. It is the exchange of righteousness. And I don't want to say that here you have faith. That's not something you exchange. Exchange is something that you give to each other. So we're talking about righteousness. What is it that you give to Christ? And it's what this illustration will show. So boys and girls, keep thinking of this. If you receive the righteousness from God, what is it that you give to Him in exchange? And here I want to talk specifically this very way. What do you give? So think this way, boys and girls. Every boy and girl watching. And of course this is to have every adult paying attention to. We're talking about him giving righteousness. Well, what do you give? And I want you to understand it. Faith is of the essence, but we don't give faith to him. He's the one who gives faith to us. What do we give? He gives us righteousness. It's an exchange. We need to give him something. What is it that we give? And when we look at this illustration, we will find out. And this is why our third point is faith and grace. Well, let's look at what happened. God told Abraham, and it was after he asked, and this shows again the humanity of Abraham. He said, Lord, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Give me, give me a sign, Lord. How can I know that this is true? And God said, give me an heifer, a heifer, 
Give me a she-goat, so a female goat. Give me a ram. And go get a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So five animals. Two of them were birds, and he was to kill, but just lay them on the ground. But the bigger animals, he was supposed to cut them in half. And since they were cut in half, they were to be put one on each side, and then another one on each side, and then another one on each side, and then the two little pigeons, turtle dove and pigeon. And it would form, as it were, a hallway to pass through. Now, archaeologists have confirmed that this was one way by which people would make covenants. So if I were to sell a piece of land to someone and it would cost so many shekels of silver and I couldn't pay all of them at once, I would give a down payment and then we would strike the covenant and we would kill an animal and both parties would walk through those animals and they were both saying this, if I don't finish giving all the shekels that I owe, may that happen to me. He was literally saying, you can kill me if I don't pay what I owe. And the other party who owned the land would be saying the same thing. If I don't give you the land, if you finish paying everything and I attack you and take the land back, may that happen to me. They were literally saying, they were literally signing their covenant with their blood, as it were. And those animals were there to make it very visible to make it very clear. So you can imagine, boys and girls, think of it. It would be a grotesque sight. These dead animals, blood would be all over and and these men would be walking through and it would be very solemn to think, I better make my payment. I better give the land because or else he's going to come after me and do this. And I'm giving him the power to do it. I'm saying if I don't keep my word, this can happen and you're not guilty of murder. It'll be justice. And so as each one of them passed through those animals, it would just be very solemn in their hearts. And and they wouldn't do that lightly. They would do that knowing, I don't want to die, I will pay the money. I don't want to die, I will give the land and I'll never bring it back to me by force or any other way. It was a way of signing, as it were, of covenant. And God told Abraham to lie down those animals that way. And, and, and it stayed that way. It got towards the late afternoon. The sun was going down. There were, there was these animals that were coming, the, the, the birds of prey. And a- Abraham was driving them away because he understood this, this is something solemn. This is like a sacrifice. God has sent me to bring these animals. It's to the Lord. Let me wait to see what happens. And he was driving those animals away. He didn't want them... Um, um, messing things up but then came this great darkness it says a horror of a great darkness fell upon him and that's when God began to speak and amazingly and this is what's always so precious God reveals things like a friend to another of what will happen and he tells Abraham about the whole sojourn in Egypt he he says that that his seed would be in a strange land even tells him that it would be for 400 years and that they would be servants there that they would be slaves but then he says that he would judge that nation afterward and that they would come out with a great substance and indeed they did After Israel came out of Egypt, they were in the millions. They only went down as several families and came down a mighty people. 
And then he says, and you, Abraham, will die in peace in good old age. And then verse 16, he even says that the, the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. So after they come out of Egypt, they would finally come back to that land where Abraham was. It was Canaan. And he says another judgment would happen because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God, God is revealing secrets. It's amazing how God told Abraham about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and now he's telling Abraham, and Egypt will be judged. He didn't mention Egypt right here, but we know it was. And as the people left Egypt and went into Canaan, then the Canaanites would be judged. And God is revealing all of this. And then verse 17, this is the most um, critical verse about those animals and what happened. And I know, boys and girls, you, you know what happened, right? What, what happened with those animals. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. So if it was all dark, this is all that Abraham could see. This, this smoking furnace and a burning lamp lamp. See, both of these objects had something of fire in them. If it is a smoking furnace, well, then it means that there's some fire burning in there and some smoke coming out, and then a burning lamp. And many have called this, the name we have for this is a theophany, where God shows his presence in a symbolic way, like Moses spoke to God as the burning bush was revealing God to him, but it was just a symbol. Um, this would be the same thing. Um, Abraham was being able to see a manifestation of God without seeing God because no one can see God and live. And so that God would have passed through those animals. Now, what was God doing? He was showing exactly this reality of the great exchange. He was saying, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant. I will make you a great people. And I will bless you. And I will bless all the nations through you. And if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may that happen to me. The text doesn't say anything about Abraham passing through. Um, it's possible that he did. We, we don't know. But we also know this that God was also saying, since you, Abraham, won't keep your part of the covenant, that can also happen to me if you don't keep it. And the reason we know this is because it's precisely what happened. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, we saw also this morning that his mission on earth was to go to the cross. And on the cross, he was cut off of the world of the living. The Lord Jesus died, but he never ever committed any sin whatsoever. So why did he die? He died because of our sins. And here, boys and girls, is the answer. If you answered it this way, now I want to give you the answer. What is it that you give to God 
and he gives to you his righteousness. And it's not that we give something that is valuable enough to receive his righteousness. It isn't. But what we give is our sins. It is our sins that are imputed upon Jesus when we trust in Jesus. And his righteousness is imputed upon us because of his grace. And this is the great exchange. This is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I love it for us to meditate upon this one reality and being spoken of this way. Not a single sin that was upon Jesus was his own. But he was treated as if all of them were. That's why he died. That's why he suffered. You know, you need to think of it this way. This is why they spat upon him. This is why they buffeted him. This is why he was betrayed. He, he was suffering what sin deserves. And all of that sin, not a single one of them was his, but he was treating as if they all were. He was treated as if they all were. And here's Jesus on the cross. Why does it turn black? And why does he cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, God is treating Jesus as if all those sins that you and I, everyone who believes in Jesus, we gave our sins to him. He took him upon himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. See, our sins were imputed upon him. They were given to him. So in a very real sense, that's what we give. And what does he give back? His righteousness. And we say the very same thing about his righteousness. Not, not a single ounce of our righteousness that we have is really ours. It is all from this gift. But God treats us as if it is all ours. And this is exactly the words, and I, and I love it also how they make this so clear, and, and it's even in the form of the Lord's Supper when it speaks of this righteousness. I want to read it again. Um, how, art thy, how art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me, that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to do all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, and here showing how truly it becomes art. Even so as if I never had nor committed any sin. Here they're not defining it, but why? Because they're on Jesus. Our sins are on Him. So it's as if we never sinned. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all the obedience with Christ has accomplished for me. And as much as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart, you know, if we don't know many by heart of the Lord's days, this is one question we need to commit to memory. It's the, it is the one question that speaks of the great exchange. 
Jesus took upon himself our guilt and our sin and our shame, our folly, our transgressions, all our lies, all our lewdness, all of everything, every theft, every robbery, every cheating in a test, every despising of a mama or a daddy, of, of, of not being nice to each other, of, of little children. If you have hit a, ch- a, a brother or a sister, if you have disobeyed your father and mother, and, and husbands who have not been loving to their wives, and, and if we have been um, um, serving one another as we should, all of these sins were pounded upon the Lord Jesus for every true Christian so that you can receive that righteousness. Is that merit? You see how completely opposite of any merit this is. Can't possibly be. No one gives gold for trash. God doesn't give us righteousness for our sins. And this is why I close with our third point, faith and grace. Grace points to the reality that we don't deserve any of this. Um, This is how the, the Lord's Day ends. The last question, why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? And, and this is what we have to have very ingrained in us, is that when, when the word faith is used in the Bible, it automatically means no works. Faith doesn't mean, oh, I'm believing and so then I deserve it. No, faith means it's all of God because faith is of God. And when we embrace and when we trust, we're not doing anything of works. We're acknowledging we're sinners. We're acknowledging that only had filth to exchange for this righteousness. I have nothing. And yet I come and confess this very nothing that I have and of the everything that Christ is. See, this is the repentance and faith. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm seeing that I'm just wicked. And I'm coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I can just throw myself before thee. The, the hell that thou hast made, I deserve that. That is the place that I deserve forever and ever. And I can only come here and confess this. This is repentance. But you're going to him. And you're trusting in him. And you're pleading his mercy. And you're saved. He declares you righteous. A righteousness that is not your own, but he treats it as if it is. And this is the answer. Look, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. There, There is no such thing as worthiness of faith. Because faith is not a work. It is a gift. And yet we're commanded to have it. But even in in our being commanded to trust, it never turns into a work. It is always a gift of His. Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. And that I cannot receive any and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. And when, I, and when we say faith only, when the catechism, the Bible, it is really meaning we're completely at the mercy of God. And this was Abraham. As much as he is praised as the man of, who had faith and the father of the faithful, it was all God's grace to Abraham. He didn't deserve it. The very next chapter, he's sinning and he has a child with Hagar. Just before this, he lied and said that Sarah wasn't his wife. Abraham's not perfect. 
His faith isn't perfect, but he had faith. He trusted in God. And you and I can only be saved and have this righteousness if you have faith in God. Faith that he sent the Lord Jesus, that he died on the cross for sinners, and you confess your sins and how much you need him. So as, as we come to the end of the Apostles' Creed, my, my prayer is that everyone in our congregation, every child, every boy and girl, every young person, how I, how I wish and long that each one of you could be right here where we can look each other in the eye. But maybe in God's providence, sometimes being alone and directly in your home, you can go right to your bedroom and fall before the Lord now and plead that he would save you, that you would trust this gracious, glorious Savior who died for sinners and simply confess, I am a horrible sinner. I have nothing, Lord, in my hand. And I do have my sins. And that is what I give. Please give me thy righteousness. Give me forgiveness. Cleanse me and pardon me of all my sins. And if that happens to you, you, you are the receptacle of this righteousness. The one who, who bears this hope of eternal life and the comfort of sins forgiven. And may the Lord bless his word and let us then come before him in prayer. Our gracious, glorious God, how we thank Thee, Lord, for that day that Abraham saw this manifestation of Thy presence passing through the animals. And Lord, we know Thou art God and would never lie and not keep Thy covenant. But the Lord Jesus did die and was executed because we didn't keep the covenant. And Lord, we pray that thou would give this sense of confession to every soul to truly acknowledge that they would repent and believe, not that they would despair and flee from thee. That is what the devil would like to make someone feeling the misery as it were of his or her sins but that does not save, but that we would confess it, that we would lay it bare before thee. Yes, Lord, we, we have not kept the covenant, and I do believe Jesus has. Oh, Lord, use thy gospel. Save, Lord, a great multitude of people. Add them, Lord. Um, engraft them in Christ, that they may belong to thee, that they may count the price, that they would not look back, that they may count the cost, that they may realize it's not even sacrifice, not to have a home, but to have heaven, not to have where to lay my head, but to have my Savior as mine, as much, Lord, as it involves sacrifice at the end of the day. It isn't any because of the glorious um, exchange. And even this, Lord, that Christ would take our sins, but give us his righteousness, the world, Lord, cannot even understand. This is unfathomable. 
It sounds too good to be true, but it is the gospel. It is the good news of salvation. Lord, may everyone within the reach of our words receive Christ, love Him, serve Him, no matter how the cost is, and not look back and serve Him towards heaven forever. We pray, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.